For those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Justin Patterson. I'm an elder here at Shalford, and I have the pleasure of continuing our sermon series today in the book of Matthew. We're going to pick up right where Pastor Johnny left off last week, so if you guys want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 18 and go through verse 38. This is Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, so read with me. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Would you open our hearts this morning to it? Would your Holy Spirit prepare our hearts to receive this word and receive this message? Lord, I pray that you would convict us and encourage us this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's break down quickly what we just read, and let's recap where we left off last week. If you recall, Pastor Johnny preached through the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9. So we have Jesus here in Capernaum. We saw Jesus calm the storm, restore two demon-possessed men, forgive and heal a paralyzed man, call Matthew. And lastly, Jesus was questioned about fasting. Pastor Johnny summarized last week that Jesus has the authority over the natural, the supernatural, and the spiritual. 
And he taught us that this authority of Jesus, of Jesus is reason to rejoice. Now, in this week's text, we see Jesus perform four miracles. He heals a sick woman. He raises a dead girl. He heals two blind men. And he drives a demon out of a mute man who then speaks. And here at the end of chapter 9, we get a summary of sorts from Matthew on what Jesus has been up to. And we get a look at his compassionate heart for his people. As we dive deeper into scripture today, here's where I want us to go. I want us to look through the lens of the human responses that we see in today's scripture. And then I also want us to go and look at how it is that Jesus responded in these, each of these accounts. So starting with the human responses, let's look at the synagogue leader. We know from the other gospel accounts that his name was Jairus. And Jairus has a daughter of about 12 years of age. Now the other gospel accounts go into a little bit more detail, so we know that she was dying. She's probably not dead yet, but close to death. We know that it's his only daughter, his only child. And we know he's in a desperate situation. Think about it, right? As parents, what do we care more about than the health and well-being of our children? And here's a man whose only child is on her deathbed. He can't heal her. The doctors can't heal her. He has zero control. How humbling. What response do we see from Jairus in this low point, in this humbling circumstance? He runs to Jesus and he falls on his knees. We even see in some translations that he worshipped him. Now let's pause there for a second to acknowledge our first point of today's message. Dire circumstances can produce great humility, which can produce great faith. Dire circumstances can produce great humility, which can produce great faith. See, what happens when we humble ourselves is we recognize our need. And when we recognize our need, our natural response should be to fall on our knees and worship the Savior who has the authority to satisfy every need. I love the definition of worship. That is, worship is seeing ourselves for who we are in light of who God is. Seeing ourselves for who we are in light of who God is. Jairus says, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, we can spend a lot of time on the historical significance of a Jewish synagogue leader testifying that Jesus has the sovereignty over life and death. Here he is on his knees, worshiping this man, this teacher, this rabbi, testifying 
that he has the ability to heal his daughter from even death. It's incredible faith in the midst of the worst crisis. Dire circumstances can produce great humility, which can produce great faith. How about the sick woman? She's been bleeding for 12 years. The brief historical significance of that sickness, go read Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 33 in the Old Testament. You'll get a picture of just how significant this sickness was. This woman was ceremonially unclean. She wasn't allowed in synagogue. And because of these laws around being ceremonially clean, she basically would have been largely cast out of society, not able to really associate with others. We learn from Mark's gospel account that she had spent all of her money consulting many doctors. Could a situation be more desperate? She's broke. She's sick. She's cast out of society. How humbling. And yet we see her response. She says, if only I could touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Not, if only I could plead my case with him. If only I could get in front of him and explain my plight beg him. No, she says, if only I could touch his cloak, I will be healed. How about the two blind men? They've been following Jesus here, and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. So let's first acknowledge the ask. Right? These guys didn't see Jesus or hear Jesus performing miracles and come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, could you maybe hook a brother up with some sight? No. Right? They said, have mercy on us. They asked him for the greatest thing that they could ask him for. How about the significance of the title of Son of David? Much like Son of Man, Son of David is a messianic title. So this was them declaring this teacher, this rabbi, as the long-awaited Messiah. They can't even see him. They're blind. And they follow him and say, have mercy on us, son of David. Proclaim him as the long-awaited Messiah at a time that was undoubtedly dangerous to do so. What faith? So we see from the text here a couple of different examples of great faith from individuals who are experiencing unimaginable circumstances. Let's now look at some of the other human responses we see. When Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, tells the crowd and those playing the pipes to go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So for some historical context there, these were probably paid mourners. It was custom in those times to have two flutes and a wailing woman there when somebody would die. It's bizarre, but that's what they, 
That's what they did. So Jesus sees them and he says, go away. She's not dead, but asleep. And what's their reaction to him? They laugh at him. Right? They've, they know that the girl's dead. They've been brought there by the family to mourn. Total disbelief that this man, this rabbi, has any ability to do anything about it. They're laughing at him. How about the response of the Pharisees? In verse 34, they, they respond, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Even with supernatural miracles happening right in front of their face, we know that the Pharisees and some religious leaders were present at least through some of these miracles. So even with these supernatural miracles happening right in front of their face, they refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. In attributing this work of Jesus to Satan, we see the Pharisees and religious leaders continuing their rejection of Jesus and his works. Now, it's easy from our vantage point 2,000 years later to say, Guys, the Son of God is performing miracles right in front of your face. What are you, stupid? Right? Why are you not falling down on your knees and worshiping him? Why are you not acknowledging this man as the Son of God? Why aren't you listening to him? But how can I say that when oftentimes... I allow my own cynicism to cloud my faith. And that leads me to my second point this morning. The enemy uses cynicism and doubt as a weapon to compete against our faith. The enemy uses cynicism and doubt as a weapon to compete against our faith. Let's be honest for a second. Have you ever prayed for something while simultaneously scoffing at the notion that God might actually answer that prayer? Have you ever seen God orchestrate something in your life and find yourself trying to explain it away? This is spiritual warfare. The enemy tries to sow seeds of doubt to discredit God, to confuse God's people. And we see it throughout Scripture dating all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But we see it today in our lives as we see ourselves wrestling with doubt and allowing cynicism to combat our faith. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see the language of scheming. The enemy is scheming. In Ephesians 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The enemy uses cynicism 
and doubt as a weapon to compete against our faith. Now, Johnny and I had a great conversation this week about doubt. What do we do with doubt? We're all going to experience doubt as Christians. Where do, what do we do with it? Where do we go with it? Do we allow it to take root in our hearts and drive a division between us and God? Or do we bring it to God's feet? Do we bring it to God in prayer? I was thinking of the lyrics we just sang. Do we sing a little louder, louder than the unbelief? We see the psalmist, we see Job, we see many people throughout Scripture wrestle with God. So when you are experiencing doubt, bring it to God, lay it at His feet. The last human response I want to draw attention to this morning is what I would say is the only natural response to an encounter with God. That leads me to our third point this morning. When we encounter God, our response should be to spread the good news. When we encounter God, our response should be to spread the good news. After Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, we see in verse 26, it says, and the report of this went through all that district. You bet it did. There was a dead girl in there. We heard the flutes. We heard the woman wailing. We know they were mourning. Now she's alive. This guy goes in there with his three-person posse, and all of a sudden, she's alive? You bet it did. Jesus heals the blind men, warns them not to tell anyone, and then we see in verse 31, right, it says, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Now, we could probably make an argument that if Jesus heals you from blindness to sight and tells you not to tell anyone, you should probably not tell anyone. (laughs) You want to be blind again? (laughs) But let's be honest. Jesus probably knew they were going to go tell some people. How could you not? The Son of Man literally just gave you your eyesight. How could you not? Go tell the world about it. We see towards the end of the chapter, Jesus heals the mute man by driving out the demon. In verse 33, it says, The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, you think they went home and that was the end of it? (laughs) Didn't tell anyone? No, they marveled. Probably spread the news like wildfire. I, I wrestled with whether or not to share the story, but as I was, I was praying this morning through this scripture and, and over this sermon, and God brought this memory to mind, and so I'm just going to share it. Um, about eight or nine years ago, probably closer to nine years ago, uh, Chris and I were living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I don't remember the exact details of how we landed on this plan, but we, through prayer and, and conversation, had decided, you know what, we're going to go to a homeless shelter and we're going to take a Bible and we're just going to try to go tell the good news to somebody. Kind of a crazy plan. So we prayed about it and we go to a 
a homeless shelter in downtown Winston-Salem. And before we could even make it into the shelter, we were in the parking lot, and we saw this woman crying in her car. And we sat there for a second, like, well, is she okay? What's going on, you know? And God led us to just go start a conversation with her. And over the course of the next couple hours, we managed to share God's word with her, uh, take her, at this point, the homeless shelter had closed. We, we took her to a hotel, paid for a couple nights for a hotel for her, had this incredible conversation with her where she clearly saw God at work in this process. She's, her name was Andy. She said, I was going to drive off a bridge tonight and kill myself. She said, I don't understand what you guys are doing. And for Krista and I, as we walked away from that situation later that night, we were ecstatic. And we were ecstatic because we know God just orchestrated every bit of that. Every bit of it. We had just experienced God at work in the most intimate way possible. And when we got home, the only thing we could think to do was call everyone we knew. <laughs> we called our parents and told them. We called our friends and told them. We told our small group, right? And I just, as I was praying this morning, thinking about this message and this point, that story came to mind. When we encounter God, our response should be to spread good news. Now, we've looked at the human responses that we saw in today's text. Let's look at how Jesus responds in each of these encounters. How does he respond? Well, in Jairus' story, right, after Jairus shows great faith, Jesus got up and went with him. And we see in verse 19, brings his daughter back to life. With the sick woman, his power heals her, and then he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Ask yourselves the question, so is it her faith that has power? No. Rather, it is the object of her faith that has power. Christ. The blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? According to your faith, let it be done to you. Our next point this morning is this. Great faith can lead to God's movement. Great faith can lead to God's movement. Jesus responded with supernatural healing to the faith we see in today's scripture. But this truth is highlighted elsewhere in Jesus' teaching. Look at Mark 9, Mark chapter 9. The father of a demon-possessed boy says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I, I love this response from Jesus in verse 23. He says, if you can? I mean, just think for a second that the creator of the universe is sitting there and someone says, like, if you can do anything... It says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. 
Later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 21, Jesus replies, and just to set the scene, uh, Jesus curses a fig tree, the fig tree withers, the disciples are astonished by it, right? And Jesus replies, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you have faith. The second observation I want to assert this morning as we look at the response of Jesus is his compassion. Our final point this morning is this we serve a compassionate God. The final few verses of chapter 9 give us some wonderful insight into the heart of our Savior. Matthew has written all about these miracles in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And we see this summary of sorts, beginning in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now that description there at the end of verse 36, that's actually describing God's people living apart from God. Like sheep, not a shepherd. See, Jesus responded with compassion in directly healing Jairus' daughter and the sick woman and the blind men and many more. But even more than the physical healings, Jesus looks at God's people and sees a greater need. A need for a shepherd. A need for a savior. Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Jesus sees the need and responds with compassion. He sees the need, right? The harvest is plentiful. Think about Jesus looking out over the crowds, having compassion for his people. He sees the need. Do we see the need? Are we willing to recognize our own need? Now let's apply the word today. Which of these human responses do you identify with? How would you describe your faith this morning? Or lack thereof? Are you on your knees testifying about Jesus' sovereignty? Like Jairus? Are your thoughts as faith-filled as those of the woman? If only I could touch his cloak and be healed. 
Are you crying out to Jesus? Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, Messiah. Like we see the two blind men do. Or, are you like those at the synagogue leader's house laughing at Jesus' claims? Like the Pharisees who refuse to acknowledge Jesus' divinity. Do you dismiss God's orchestration and will? It's just happenstance. Or by some other means than acknowledging his sovereignty. What are your circumstances this morning? Are they producing humility? Are you being humbled? Do you recognize your need this morning for a Savior? Or are you still running? Still trying to pretend like you are in control? Are you scoffing at Jesus? Are you denying his sovereignty? Perhaps the catalyst that God will use to start or to grow your faith will be you finally being honest with yourself about your need. So as I wrap up this morning, let me summarize. In today's text, we see Matthew records four healing miracles. And this illustrates God's authority over sickness and death and his compassion for his people. We see dire circumstances produce great humility, which leads to great faith. We see the enemy at work as Jesus is laughed at and denied. And we see evangelistic responses as hundreds encounter the Son of God. We see great faith lead to God's movement. And we get an inside look into Jesus' compassionate heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, what your scripture teaches us about your heart. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on this scripture today, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, convict us and stir us up, encourage us, and ultimately drive us closer to you, Lord. I pray that we would all recognize our need this morning. Lord, we are like sheep without a shepherd when we are apart from you. Draw us near, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.